Hello, I'm Ben Kitchings. This is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. Thank you for tuning in to episode two of season one. The 19th century was when Europe finally shook off feudalism one final time. This can be seen in workers' movements and also in liberal reform movements across the continent all through the 19th century, especially in the middle to later stages. What is today considered Germany and other German-speaking peoples in Europe lived basically in this confederation of states and city-states in Central Europe. They were bound by a language more than a political culture. The Romans had settled up there somewhat reluctantly. German was the least like the Latin languages. It didn't have very many borrowed words from Latin. It was almost its own discrete language, more similar to Dutch than anything else, and vaguely similar to English in both structure and other things, but word order didn't matter as much. How exactly did Germany become a country in the first place? The Franco-Prussian War. The Franco-Prussian War was one of the most important wars in European history. It was certainly important because it drew the map for World War One. It also set up the three dominant European powers of England, France, and Germany. And now I'm about to repeat a sentence that every educator on two continents has repeated for basically forever. So, you know, why reinvent the wheel? I mean, you know, let's not take the Pepsi challenge now. Essentially, France was a dominant military power. I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of that comes back to what you think of when you think of France in World War II. The reason you think of France in World War II as being terrible is because essentially they could not adapt to 20th century uh, weapons of war and tactics, especially the Blitzkrieg tactic. Now, you're going to notice that theme a whole lot countries not being able to adapt. They couldn't adapt to their people, they couldn't adapt to the technology, they certainly couldn't adapt to the flu, so why couldn't they adapt? Well, gentle listener, as my friends used to say, I'm going to tell you what. The people in Europe, that is, the royal people in Europe, were of a different time, literally. A lot of these people had a mindset stuck in the Middle Ages, not even the Victorian time. They had wanted, to some degree, industrialization, although that's honestly probably not true of the Russian Tsar, but they had wanted industrialization, but they had no idea of the craziness that it would bring about. Think about the inventions of the printing press, and then multiply that times about a million, and that's what we're talking about here. I mean, imagine going from basically a post-Black Death feudal society to a super independent, industrialized group of folks pretty much, not overnight, but certainly at a more galloping pace than you're able to keep up with because, frankly, you haven't had to do that before. Haven't had to keep up with stuff like this before. 
but now you are. Essentially, Germany was a product of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 1871. Right away, this upset the balance of power in Europe. Germans were known as great fighters, though, in Roman times, and this tradition was a tradition that the Germans of the 19th century took with great pride as they looked enviously across Europe and saw nation-states forming. They saw nation-states as a way to gain supremacy and economic hegemony in a modernizing economy. Gentle listener, don't worry. I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does this have to do with the flu? Ben, I came here to listen about the flu. Can you please stick to the flu? Gentle, sweet listener, this has everything to do with the flu, specifically the flu deaths. You see, the run-up to World War I was essentially a conflict between Germany, a new nation-state, and some very old nation-states and old empires, almost going back all the way to the Roman times. On the day Germany was founded in 1871, Germany was already a world power. It could boast a military tradition that went back at least into Roman times. In fact, most of the soldiers were Germanic in the Roman army. Historians differ as to whether or not or what role this played in the fall of the Roman Empire, but to be sure, they had a long history in Europe. German soldiers had a history of fighting in wars across Europe. In the Napoleonic Wars, they fought bravely. They fought on the side of the British in the American Revolution. 1714 saw the advent of the Georgian kings in England. The first one was not interested at all in English government. And because of that, he gave rise to the prime minister. The prime minister's office was pretty much a informal situation for many years. But that really has nothing to do with the flu. No, you know a lot about British history. Okay, let's keep this thing from going all the way off the rails. So anyway, the first German king gave rise to the second German king, and so on. They were called the Georgians. Anyway, also in Germany, they had numerous deposits of coal. And they were the breadbasket of Europe. So all this is to say they weren't exactly an impoverished backwater with no military experience at all. What they didn't have was an empire. Ben, the gentle listener asks. Okay, I'll give you some time to talk about this, even though it has nothing to do with the flu. But can you answer me a question, Ben? Okay, gentle listener, what's the question? Why do they need to have colonies? The reason any self-respecting country in Europe needs to have colonies, and a lot of very small ones had very large colonies, was because every currency was, was essentially gold. It wasn't backed up by gold. It was gold. And you don't need to go around giving your gold to, say, Spain if you're Germany. Now, do you? No. You need to keep your gold in-house. How do you do that? I'm glad you asked. There is this continent, or I guess the southern part of Afro-Eurasia that we call Africa. It was rich with minerals. There were deposits of gold and diamonds and iron and God knows what else 
all over Africa. There were rumors of even more deposits. And the Germans wanted some. But what they needed more than anything in 1871, what they absolutely had to have more than anything at all, was oil. You know what they had none of? Oil. They had lots of coal, which accidentally gave rise to a chemistry industry because they needed to make oil, so they tried to make oil with coal. And what they got, aside from plastic and a whole lot of really, really cool stuff, like dyes and things like that, was this dirty sludge that they tried to put in motors, and it wouldn't really work. It, it would just be really dirty and filthy, and, you know, they weren't exactly tree-hugging environmentalists, but there was a practical side to this. You had to break down the engine and clean it out, and that was just insane, and nobody wanted to do that very much. So they decided to go to war. Who'd they decide to go to war with? Well, they decided to go to war in Africa. First with the Belgians, then with the British. And now I'm going to do a whole lot of injustice to the Franco-Prussian War. The Franco-Prussian War was a war in which Otto von Bismarck engineered a war between France and Germany. The reason he did that was because he wanted to unify Germany. That is, he wanted to unify a bunch of German-speaking people in the middle of the European map into one country. Otto von Bismarck engineered a war between France and Prussia when he had a telegram misworded between the king of Prussia, his boss, King William, and the French government. In the telegram that he falsified, he suggested that the French ambassador was dismissed out of hand. He knew this would cause a war. Why did he want to cause the war? Because he wanted to unify Prussia, and he thought that he could defeat France. The Franco-Prussian War is widely thought of as the first industrial war fought on European soil. <clears throat> Otto von Bismarck knew that he could win this war because of Prussian military and industrial might. Prussia was the first nation to use railroads as an instrument of war, at least in Europe. They were also the first European power to use machine guns on the battlefield. France really had no shot in this war because they were still using muskets. Imagine muskets against machine guns. I mean, that just says it all right there. Like I said, this is a common theme. Royalty thrust into industrialization, whether they want to be thrust into industrialization or not. Anyway, so as an outgrowth of this war, Germany was born. Bismarck's clever forgery had done its work. Five days after the fake letter was received in Paris, the French Assembly voted to declare war on Prussia. Within months, the empire that France had built would be crumbled to nothing. Otto von Bismarck and King William were both very conservative men. They hated the liberal movements throughout Europe and were very suspicious of them. They were convinced that the people were up to no good and that if given a chance, the people would overthrow them and go into a state of anarchy. 
King William much preferred to spend money on his castles. He drove the realm into debt horrendously. His role model was Louis XIV of France, someone that he greatly admired. And he also thought the people that killed him were subverting the will of God. Obviously, you can see where we would have some problems with him as a modern ruler today. Well, this is what I mean. These rulers in Europe were just poorly suited to the industrial world in which they found themselves. Whenever I read that or think that about a ruler, the first thing I think is, I mean, one thing about the industrial age and then the information age that succeeded it was that we seem to expect a lot out of rulers. And maybe some of these people just didn't have the software. I mean, think about it. Would Genghis Khan, for example, have been a good 21st century information age ruler? I don't think so, because information age rulers have to govern at least partly by the will of the people. And, you know, like I keep saying, people like King William of Prussia, he was from a different era. He, he didn't have to worry about you know, the will of the people. He didn't particularly like the Prussian assembly. He didn't think the people mattered. He pretty much believed in the divine right of kings. And before we, you know, say, well, that's not good, pretty much everybody believed in the divine right of kings until right before that, basically. I mean, you look at how Europe rallied around beating Napoleon and how they cast Napoleon as a terrible evil subverter of monarchy. I just think that we, we moderns, ask a little too much of our leaders. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think we should, because, you know, the hallmark of our society is that we expect people to, to lead. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, I, you know, I just think that um, it's a little unfair of history to judge King William of Prussia in that regard. I mean, obviously, history being what it is, we see where the 20th century went, and we see where the Germans went after that, especially with World War II. I don't know. Just a thought. Really, I wonder if William and Bismarck, and indeed pretty much all of Europe, was essentially just a prisoner of, you know, its own history. Or more like, not a prisoner, but just sort of trapped, or maybe captive. You know, that's something that we Americans kind of lose sight of, is that because we were Americans, we had to sort of, you know, willfully take people in. You know, we had to consciously decide to forge a society in um, on this island continent. Well, you know, it's not really an island. 
but it has been for a lot of history. I mean, it's only after World War II that America became the preeminent power that was, even though certainly Roosevelt, that is Teddy Roosevelt, put America on the path to that. But anyway, so these Europeans were kind of like just sort of trapped by their own history. And they were, I really get a sense like they were playing in a, at a game developed by the Romans. You know, they were acting out Roman insecurities. Like, for example, the, the Romans decided that the, that the Germans were different from the French basically because the, the French, or the Gaul, as they called them, certainly the toga-wearing Gaul, they saw the toga-wearing Gaul as much more uh, willing to assimilate into Roman values and Roman customs, where the Germani uh, really didn't. I mean, the, the Romans had a, had a fascinating relationship with the Germani. On the one hand, they... They feared them. On the other hand, they hated them and, and they loathed them. They they said the Germani had no self-control at all. Which, I mean, you know, I think they put that down to their ability of certain uh, Germani, or I guess we would say today Germans, to hold their drink. The Germans they saw as also people that were Essentially, for various reasons, they decided, essentially, they decided they were virtually incapable of farming. They decided that food just didn't grow there, wherever the Germani were. Now, the Germani, they claim to say, lived north of the Danube. And essentially, the Romans would interpolate the land that would later become Germany. That is, it would later become, you know, the Holy Roman Empire. And then later it would become, you know, the Confederacy of the Rhine. Now, once the Confederacy of the Rhine started happening, the people who lived inside of that began to think of themselves as sort of pan-German. In other words, they began to think of themselves as unified by a language where they never really had before. So I guess you could say, well, you could say, actually, it is very fair to say that they were the last nation-state, and they were the last nation-state that came of age in a, I guess, something very close to the modern industrialized world. I mean, we're not that far off from, you know, World War One, which to that point was an expression of, you know, um, industrialization writ large on the battlefield. And that's very important to think about with World War One is that it really actually was industrialization writ large on a battlefield. If you want to think about, to use a sports analogy, if you want to think about the Franco-Prussian War as basically 
the preseason or sort of like training for what would become at that point this huge war. Now, okay, I, I need to talk about, for example, why the, the Germans wanted to get involved, which is what, to say why they wanted to get involved in World War I which is to say they really didn't want to get involved. It was a completely accidental war uh, that was basically gotten into because of very complicated, you know, treaties and blunders. But it was really interesting. And we're going to cover that uh, in depth tomorrow. Or I guess, not necessarily tomorrow, but in episode three of my little talk about the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1918. Now, before I leave, I just wanted to get, uh, I guess, meta, if you will, and pull back and talk about how their society, that is the society of Europe, right up to the eve of World War One, was a deeply complicated and much more complex than anything that had come before it. And one of the reasons the war happened was because the smart leadership had sort of gone away. And I guess it's kind of like a warning sign, I guess you could really call it, uh, like a warning sign with, say, any modern country today, that you have to have capable leadership, no matter what the party is or what the, you know, belief system is around social welfare or whatever, as long as the leadership is essentially acting in good faith and not being authoritarian in their leanings, the main thing you need is you need intelligent, capable leadership that's capable of leading this nation, a given nation on the world stage. And that's especially true if there's a world power. If a country is a world power, it has like a um, I guess you could say it. It has a target on the back of every other country. And I don't mean like a military target. I mean like an economic target or a cultural target. I mean, if you look at us with our, um, the way we export culture to a great degree through Hollywood, which Hollywood is almost a verb in the world today but in reality it's essentially a place it is a place and I'm I don't know if everybody listening to this podcast realizes that that Hollywood is in a frame of mind it's a it's an actual like neighborhood in Los Angeles that has become synonymous with a global entertainment culture now you know so that make that marks America out as a, a huge 
um, influencer in the world culturally. But it's really important, and World War One, and the run up to World War One shows this over and over again. That you have to have good, capable leadership. As long as the capable leadership is essentially elected and reflects the will, I guess the will of the majority of the people. You know, ideally, it reflects the will of a healthy majority of the people. But nonetheless, the will of the majority of the people, you know, have to be basically. Um, looked after I guess then you basically you know you're okay but when you start to veer into you want to say like experiments of stupidity or like if you purposely get or even accidentally get leaders that that aren't up to the challenge and that aren't up to the realities of of making sure that the world runs correctly or that the world in which you govern runs correctly then you end up into problems and we're going to see this tomorrow or i'm sorry in episode three we're definitely going to see this for sure in episode three where you had this basically like a generation across europe of these leaders that were very very excellent at what they did as far as piloting their country through a transitional time. And they all knew it was a transitional time, too. It wasn't like they were accidentally thinking it wasn't. No, they all knew it was a transitional time. But anyway, because of the nature of monarchy and, and whatnot, the successors to those leaders were very, very much not really up to the task at all. Like, at all, at all. And that very quickly went from a stable situation to a not-so-stable situation. And not-so-stable situations, when you're talking about nation-states with, with access to large armies and large wells of people that can be drafted into an army, etc., that can be a really serious problem. Now, I talk in episode one about how a pandemic is essentially a natural situation amplified dramatically by man's reaction to it and by the fact that if it takes place in a concentration of a lot of people, you are going to have a serious problem. Okay, you're going to have a serious health problem. Well, when you take terrible geopolitical leadership and you add to that the pestilence or, I guess, scourge that is the 1918 flu, which, and this has to be said, it didn't, the 1918 flu didn't actually come into being in 1918. There were people, a few people dying of the 1918 flu as far back as 15 or 16. 
So it was around. I mean, it was something buzzing around in the background. But if it hadn't been for this historical blunder that was World War One, it probably wouldn't have gone nearly as wide as it did. And that's a big difference between World War One and World War Two. World War Two was essentially this complicated and very real failure of the aftermath of World War One, and it was also yes, it was you know yes, the Allies liberated the Jews and. Yes, the Allies ended fascism in Europe. But it was also sort of... It's almost as though World War I was paused. And World War II was just sort of an outgrowth of that. And I'm going to get into that a little bit through the course of this podcast. But I really just wanted to talk about right now is that the Industrial Revolution... One of the things that it did, that it did better or worse than anything before it, was that it put countries in a situation where they had better pick capable leaders. Because now you've got some serious arsenals, and not only do you have it, but everybody around you has it. And if you're in Europe, you're nursing old animosities that are, in some cases, not even really yours. They're from a bygone empire that isn't really around anymore. Actually, it isn't around anymore, except in architecture and language. And basically because the politics of this dead empire that's been dead for thousands of years by the time that you come along, but basically because the politics of this empire don't matter You've decided to lionize it, even though, like, your people, your, the people sharing most of your DNA, were victimized horribly by this empire, you know, for much of your history with the empire. But, you know, you don't want to talk about that because, much like an abused child, you'd rather, you know, lionize the the long dead empire. And it was almost really like the European animosities against each other. It was almost like they were, were paying homage, if you will, to a, to a very serious and very real, um, empire that wasn't really around anymore. And of course the cynical thought that people want to have is, well, you know, that was because they were being kept in power. That is the leaders. That's, because the leaders were being kept in power. So, of course, you know, they're, they're going to want to keep wars going. And sure, and maybe I even believe that, but I wonder, and this is what I'm wondering, I wonder if we want to live in the fantasy world of had the Roman Empire never existed at all, would these people be as, would there be this animosity, this that they feel towards each other. I mean, after all, most of the heads of Europe, most of the, the regal heads of Europe were basically related. And, you know, nationalism, essentially, 
in Europe anyway, is, is an outgrowth of, of tribalism. And where does European tribalism come from? It comes from the Roman interpolation into barbarian tribes. Okay. So, you know, am I laying World War One at the feet of the Romans? Absolutely not. But I am saying that the Romans had a part to play in all the European history or most of the European history that came after them to some extent or another. And World War One is certainly no exception. And but yet again, we have to talk about when we're talking about this, when we're talking about World War One and the powers that be in Ger in Germany and the rest of Europe. We must simply talk about the fact that these people, these heads of state, with the possible exception of Britain and the possible exception of France, that these heads of state simply did not, you know, cotton towards elected bodies to begin with, and all heads of state did not cotton towards the the workers' rights revolution that was going on in Europe. And to some extent, the the European leaders of the of Europe, you know, the leaders of Europe, were essentially saying we need to get these radicals out and get them exercised. And the tragedy was they thought, these leaders thought, that exercise was warfare. They thought it was a game. They thought the war would be short. They thought the war would be sweet. I don't know why. Possibly because the Franco-Prussian War was short and sweet, relatively speaking. Um, certainly the Boer War, which preceded, or it came after the Franco-Prussian War, was, was sweet and short from a European standpoint. It didn't take place in Europe. It involved European powers, but it didn't take place in Europe. And that war, to me, was fascinating, the, the Boer War. It was totally fascinating. And that ought to be the subject of a podcast that I do later, where I go maybe not as in-depth as I'm going here, but actually just sort of focus on the Boer War. Because I don't know too many people that know much about it. And it's really interesting. But, so I've, I've walked us up almost to the, to the Balkan, essentially, explosion, which is going to kick all this off. And then in episode three of our little podcast about, you know, the the deep dive in the Spanish flu, we're going to talk about what was going on in the Balkans in the run-up to the um, World War One, And I promise after that, we will actually get to the Spanish flu. It's just I honestly think that I have to situate the Spanish flu inside of World War One, and I have to situate World War One in the geography and in the culture 
of Europe. Because, especially for an American audience, you're really not going to understand too much about it if I don't. Thank you and have a good night and have a good rest of your day if it's daytime where you are or nighttime where you are. There are a zillion podcasts that you can hear and you've chosen to hear mine and it honors me greatly. Thank you.